Our scripture passages this morning come from Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. So I'm going to invite you to turn first to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 and 17. And then we'll read all of chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 2, which we were looking at uh, last week, uh, most of us are familiar with these first three chapters of the book of Genesis. But in particular, I want us to understand what's going on in chapter 2 on that sixth day of creation when God has established the garden. And we began at verse 15 with this statement. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you go back to verse number 9, you would read that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So two trees, two significant trees, are highlighted in Genesis chapter 2. Now we come then to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, with her, with her. Hear that? He was with her, with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you? that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come to the word this morning passages which historically have been very, very familiar to Christians, even very familiar to Western culture. And yet in so many ways, Father, uh, your word here at the very beginning of your book, in so many ways your word has been distorted and denied and rejected. And so we want to come, Lord, asking for your Holy Spirit to guide, direct us in accepting it, understand the profound message that it would teach us, embrace it, and because it's your word, we'd be sanctified by it. Grant us, Lord, then hearts to hear and also lives that would humbly submit and obey, sanctified by your truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. The hardest conversations that I've ever had have been with people who have said, if God is so very good, why is there so much evil? If God is so very good, why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much that is wrong with this world. Most often when people have raised that issue or question with me, it's not because they're really looking at the world globally. They're really looking at why they themselves are undergoing so much pain, so much suffering, affliction, disappointment. And because of that sense that somehow their lives don't seem to really matter to God, they're looking then at the larger question of 
why? Does God really care about this world? It's just so broken and filled with so much evil. In essence, they're saying, I fail to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living in terms of what is going on. I think all of us at different times in our lives may be gripped with the reality of evil and pain and suffering, and we may, in our own hearts, ask that kind of a question. In fact, I said to this young man who was raising this question with me, I said, I want to say this to you. I would be very, very disappointed in who you are and in your character if you failed to feel the depth of the pain and suffering in other human beings. I, I would fail, I, I, would, I would be seriously disappointed as someone who, in his case, and someone who wants to be a doctor, if you failed to see the misery and brokenness of human beings. And it may be that God is impressing all of this upon you so that you never become someone as a doctor whose only great desire is self-aggrandizement, prestige, and, and affluence. That your heart's motivation would always be toward the remedy that humanly we can bring to human pain and suffering. But it still raises the larger question. And I thought about that conversation with him. I thought about it a lot. And I, and I realized that most often when that question is asked, there's something not quite there in terms of our understanding the world rightly and truly and accurately. Because what's hidden inside of that question is the premise, this world is broken your fault. This world is broken. God, I'm blaming it on you. And that's why Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 are absolutely critical. We have to believe the biblical story. We have to believe who's responsible for the brokenness of this world. Because if we don't understand why this world is broken, say it this way, it's most likely you can't savingly connect yourself to Jesus Christ. If you don't understand why this world is broken, it's hard to understand how you could grasp the significance of the gospel in a manner that would connect your life to the saving work that Jesus did upon the cross. That's how significant this issue is. Because unless you understand where the blame lies for the brokenness of the world... 
how can you ever understand what God had to do in order to save this world out of its brokenness? That's where Genesis 3 is perhaps such a pivotal story in terms of truth. I will tell you this, that the world seeks to supply its answers to the problems of evil and pain and suffering. But it will fail to do so. As an example, if you've ever seriously studied Buddhist thought, you'll understand that Buddhist begins with the idea that suffering is part of the world. The solution Divorce yourself from the suffering. Develop a state within the soul in which that suffering doesn't really touch you. Become enlightened in such a way that you rise above that suffering. Ignoring the evil in the world is not a solution. Pretending it doesn't exist is not a solution. The Bible is the only story in all of ancient history. It's the only perspective today that truly addresses the issues of pain and suffering. It's the only perspective that takes evil as seriously as evil needs to be addressed. Now, as we come to the few verses in chapter 2, then in chapter 3, as we come into the biblical story here. I want us again to follow the rubric that we've been covering over the last several weeks. The rubric of there's something of correction going on here. There's something of deep connection to Christ going on here. And then implicit and explicit in all of this is our calling as Christians. What's the great big grand truth that we're looking at? It's this. The world is broken we broke it. But God, in his mercy, has sent Christ into this world as the only one who can rectify and rebuild that which was destroyed, and our only hope is in him. That's the big story. That's the big picture. That's the gospel. We find the big picture. We find the big story. In Genesis chapter 3, we find the gospel. Now, I want to begin with the idea of, of correction here. Um, and here's what I want us to correct, first of all. Pagan thought, in contrast with biblical thought, pagan thought says, never good. That is to say, the world has never been good. The world has never been good. That's pagan thought. Remember, as we've looked at those uh, cultural myths that surrounded the, the believers in Egypt and in Canaan and also in uh, Mesopotamia back in Babylon, what did all of those cultural myths proclaim? They proclaimed that at the very beginning, the gods that emerged were immediately involved in conflict with one another and struggle, and that the gods emerged out of chaos, 
So all of this stuff, we can say from the very beginning, uh, had all of this kind of struggle and competition and brokenness. In fact, the gods that emerged out of this chaos once in a while demonstrate what we might call nobility, but only once in a while that their constant state is that of fighting and struggling. They display all of the vices that human beings display right from the beginning. And then it's out of that kind of struggle, out of that kind of cosmic mess, so to speak, human beings are produced. What you find in paganism is this idea. It's been a mess. It's been a moral mess and brokenness from the beginning. Do you see that? When you read these stories, it begins in a mess. It continues in a mess. As it once was, it continues to be. Now, of course... What we would call the the modern secular story of creation, the modern secular myth, evolutionary science, so-called, resembles paganism in that at the very beginning of human life, human life arises out of this primordial array of forces that are one and attacking one another again and again and again in terms of just the forces of nature. And somehow, fortuitously, life comes out of that. But life is incredibly fragile. Life at any moment could accidentally disappear. Life emerges in the whole context of struggle again and again and again. Life only accidentally survives. And then as human life supposedly takes hold, the term survival of the fittest is the term that was supplied to describe how, in fact, things continue to grow and develop in such a way that Alfred Tennyson's line, nature read in tooth and claw, has been applied to the theory of evolution. Now, what is nature like? It's not benign. It's not friendly. It's a vicious competition between predator and prey constantly, constantly, constantly. And that is the process by which human beings were produced. So that human beings have never been anything other than what nature is actually like. Competition. Survival of the fittest. People in competition with each other, just like the creatures of nature are in competition with one another. So on and so forth. So that Is there any promise that human beings today will be any different than their ancestry and their background and their intrinsic nature? If we were formed out of the forces of nature, why would we not constantly display within ourselves today those same kinds of forces of competition, of predatoriness, and prey, and so forth?
Now, you know that there are all sorts of modern pagans and all sorts of modern atheists who want to say about human beings, well, human beings are, in fact, naturally good. Uh, We hear this. It's encoded in the Humanist Manifesto that essentially and basically human beings are good. That's why, again and again, you hear in all these movies and all these stories that are so secular, don't lose your faith in humanity. I have faith in humanity. My faith in humanity is that human beings are bad. And here's my proof. You know it. When the Nazis under Hitler began to dehumanize the Jews and eventually moved to put six million of them to death in what we call the Holocaust, the non-Jewish German citizens did not vigorously oppose the evil of that which was being done. They did not courageously and heroically rise up and oppose what the Nazi regime was doing. In fact, we look at the German population and we essentially say passivity, and worse than passivity, apathy. Now, we need to understand that passivity in the face of evil and apathy in the face of evil is evil. And you can't re... We ought never to rewrite history to say that the German people as a population in millions and millions and millions did not show themselves to be naturally good human beings. Because they failed in the moment of greatest moral crisis to do what they could have done. We have to believe that. We have to understand that. We have to see that. But, the core of the German people, no worse than the core of the American people. No worse than the core of any other sizable group of human population over the last thousands and thousands and thousands of years. If you want a barometer, if you want a measurement of what human beings are like, Take the German population between 1935 and 1945 and just look at it. That's the index of what human beings are like. That's what we are. We will allow other human beings to be unjustly and unmercifully put to death. Not really turning a blind eye. Just moving our houses away so that we aren't in the downwind of the crematory, so we don't have to smell it. It's our responsibility as believers to be able to understand that paganism and modern paganism and modern evolutionary theory really lead to human beings are broken and they've been broken from the beginning And those stories never, ever say that human beings were truly once good. 
But what are the first three chapters of Genesis declare to us? Genesis 1, 31, the end of the sixth day. Behold, God saw all that he had created, and behold, it was very good. When God created the world, everything at the final day, at the end of the day, was very good. And that means that human beings themselves were very good. They were the pinnacle of moral perfection. They, they didn't have anything within them that was morally defective. They, they had hearts that were right. They fellowshiped with God. They walked with God. There was nothing in them in terms of deceit or brokenness. They had no sense of the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the boastful pride of life. They were good and they were truly good. And because that's so, there's nothing at all like the biblical story of the creation and all these ancient pagan myths. Nothing at all like it. This story is the only story that has hope. Because if this is what we once were by the creation of God, then this might be what we might once again become by the grace of God. There's no hope in paganism. As we once were a mess from the beginning, so shall we be, world without end. <laughs> there is no hope that human evolution is going to produce a better, morally superior product. There's nothing in the forces of nature. There's nothing in the intellect of human beings that will ever bring this about. We as Christians, we have a responsibility to God's truth. We have a responsibility to the gospel. We have a responsibility to this. We have a responsibility to be able to understand the world's understanding of things tells us broken from the beginning, therefore there's never any real hope that things will ever get any better. And to say, but the biblical story says, once good, broken, promise that we can be good again. Now, the promise that the good can come again and the promise that we can become good again is what we find in chapter 3 of Genesis. And that's the connection that we find in the story to Christ. The connection that we find in Christ. Now, the story itself is one that I think we know. Um, it's one that we have perhaps um, known so well that in the familiarity of the story, there are elements of it that we have not seen in very strong relief. So, the background of the story, of course, are true trees. A tree to which Adam and Eve were prohibited, and then a tree that clearly indicated something of a promise. The tree to which they were prohibited was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree that stands there symbolic of a promise is the tree of life. And clearly the tree of prohibition is given in terms of testing because they're told not to partake of that tree. 
That's significant. God, in putting this tree in the midst of the garden, we understand, is testing his greatest of all creation, his image bearers. He's testing Adam and Eve. They have a choice to obey God, to submit to God, to trust God, and not to eat of this prohibited tree, or to disobey God, to refuse to submit to God, to make themselves their own authority in the world that God has made, and to eat. Now, the idea, actually, of what is going on here is captured by a passage we read during the Scripture. Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with your whole heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Now, I want us to appreciate that's exactly the opposite of what Eve and Adam with her actually did. Now, of course, there's the role of the serpent and what is going on. He's the diabolical tempter. He is the animalistic personification of Satan in the garden, clearly far more than just a serpent. And he persuades Eve to do what? To lean on her own understanding. That's why verse 6 presents this. Eve sees that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So here's what the story is telling us. Here is the most profound insight into the nature of human evil. It's why the world is broken. It is the greatest evil possible to act and to think independently of God. To trust in ourselves. To trust in our own thinking. To think that we have the ability to live in God's world apart from God's kingship over us. To act independently of God is to act as though God does not exist. As if God doesn't matter. To live as if we preferred that God did not exist. It is to make ourselves God over our own lives. Do we not understand that many human beings resonate with this idea that we are our own independent authority over our own lives? Some of you perhaps... uh, are familiar with Henley's poem, Invictus. Listen to these lines. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, perhaps that isn't that familiar to you, but surely 
Frank Sinatra's signature song would be familiar to you. He sings, And now, the end is near. I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. That's the spirit that motivated Eve. But also this same spirit is what motivates us in our brokenness. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I will do it my way. That defiance is the greatest source and the greatest manifestation of evil that human beings can embody and express. And that is why there is so much evil and brokenness in this world. So to answer the question, if God is good, why is there so much suffering as G.K. Chesterton once famously said to the question, what is wrong with the world? His two-word answer was this, I am. Every human being is the problem with the world. Every human being is part of the problem. Every human being contributes to the brokenness, the pain, the suffering, the evil that we find in this world. Why? Because deep in the heart of every human being is this desire to be the master of one's own fate, the captain of one's own soul, to do it all our way. That's the brokenness of the human race. Now, back to Genesis 3. God responds in judgment and grace. Let's do the reverse order. Begin with man, Adam. Verses 17, 18, and 19. What does God do? God curses the ground so that Adam, who is a farmer, would find his work becoming intensely more difficult, conflicted with the final result in terms of his life, he's going to die. To dust uh, you shall return, for dust you are, to dust you shall return. Dust, well, the idea is that God made him out of the dust, and that's going to be now his final destiny, because the world has been cursed. Now we go on to the woman, verse 16. God multiplies the pain of her childbearing, the very means by which God was going to create new image bearers, the very holy process of procreation is now going to be intensely difficult and troubled and conflicted. And further, God is going to put into the relationship that she has with her husband things that aren't really right and good as well. But then... We come to the serpent, verses 14 and 15. Now notice God curses the earth with respect to Adam 
but not Adam. Notice that God multiplies the pain in childbirth, but Eve isn't cursed. The only one who's cursed in this story is Satan himself. And so in verse 14, cursed are you above all the beasts of the earth. And there's actually verses 15, 14 and 15, an earthly dimension to this. And then there's a spiritual dimension to this because verse 14 focuses upon the earthly dimension of the curse. But it's really verse 15 that grips our attention. And so we read this. I will put enmity, God says, which means hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring, the word there is seed, and her offspring, also the same word, seed. He, referring to the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, the head of the serpent, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel, the heel of the seed of the woman. The curse is upon ultimately Satan. The judgment upon Satan is the message of grace with respect to the human race. Because the seed of a woman is going to come to bruise the serpent's head, which is a death blow, while the serpent, which will only bruise the heel of the seed, that which is crippling, not even necessarily permanently crippling and not fatal or destructive. Now, the New Testament makes it very clear. What we read here in verse 15 is the first promise of the gospel. In this curse upon the serpent, we have the first promise and prophecy about Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Jesus is the one who comes to crush the serpent's head and to destroy his evil work. For Jesus came into this world, we read in the New Testament, to destroy the works of the devil. This is where the grace of God first begins to be revealed. Now, how large is this promise? It's the promise that what we have broken God will fix by his redemption in his son. That which was once good, now no longer good, has the promise of becoming good again. And not just in the great comprehensive sense of all of creation, but in the direct and personal sense of you and me. Because the truth is, we're broken. And apart from Christ. We would have no hope. But even in Genesis chapter 3, hope is presented. And the New Testament tells us that the name of that hope is Jesus Christ. Tragedy ends with hope. The hope has a name, and the name is Christ. Now, finally then, the calling. What is upon us as believers in terms of our calling? Well, first, what we have to recognize out of this story is to see that we are the descendants of this broken mess in Genesis 3. So we can't do what Adam tried to do to shift some blame to God and the woman 
we can't do what Eve tried to do to shift all the blame to serpent. We can't shift the blame to Adam and Eve and said, well, well, we would have done better. No. If the fountainhead of the human race were perfectly good and they failed, everything downstream would guarantee to be a disaster as well. The perfectly good Adam and Eve properly represented us in the garden of Eden. Where Eve failed to trust in the Lord with her whole heart, we also likewise fail to trust in the Lord with her whole heart. When she leaned upon her understanding, she only did what you and I have likewise done again and again. We can't fix ourselves. That's what we need to understand. Broken, no self-help is going to make it better. The second thing, though, is that our lives are to embody the theme that we find that God has given us in the New Testament, expressed in many places, but sweetly, significantly, and briefly, Ephesians 2.10. You can't fix yourself, you're broken, but in Christ, you are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, meaning the recreation of you in Christ Jesus is a connection with the person and work of Christ. You're God's workmanship through His Son, Jesus Christ. What did He do? Jesus died so that all of your sin and brokenness and evil would be atoned for by His blood, His death, His time in the grave, His resurrection, so that you could become on that path to once again looking like God in Christ. He did it for you. He does it in you. And notice what Paul says. What is our purpose? To pursue the things that are good once again. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. This completes the story, doesn't it? Once good, broken, restored in Christ. Creation, fall, redemption. Where sin abounded, grace has abounded all the more. So that you and I are privileged in Christ and only through Christ to trust in the Lord with our whole hearts. That's redemption. To lean not on our own understanding, which is repentance. In all of our ways to acknowledge God so that by His grace He will direct your paths. We look like Adam and Eve when we're not trusting. 
we look increasingly like the image of the beloved Son of God when we trust. The Holy Spirit of God works in us to will and to do God's good pleasure, which is to pursue those things which God has prepared in advance for us to do. When we come to the table this morning, the table is that sacrament that we come to again and again and again so that by faith we can feed again upon the gospel that tells us again and again. Though our sins be as scarlet, yet they shall be white as snow. Though we sin, Jesus came for sinners. Though we are sick and worn out and needy, the great physician has come to rescue us. Though we ourselves were once the seed of a serpent, by the grace of God, we are now those who belong to the seed of the woman, even Jesus. This is our meal to come, to partake of, to receive God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, oh Lord, be with us, we pray. Give us faith to believe and to keep believing your gospel. Nurture our hearts to trust in you. Give us wisdom to not lean upon our own understanding. Help us, enable us to acknowledge you in all of our ways. Thank you that you will direct our paths. In Christ's name, amen.